0: Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Cover. I am your host, John Robb. Unfortunately, I am not joined here by my co host, Jeff Bears. He is stranded in some weird Seattle snow tonight, but that's okay. Um, We are very, very pleased that we're going to be joined tonight by none other than best selling author Reese Bowen, and she's going to be here talking about her latest book, which comes out February the 11th. It is called Above the Bay of Angels, it is a historical um, mystery. Set back in Queen Victoria time. We're very excited to dive into that book. We want to remind you all that all of our shows are brought to you by Kensington Books. You can visit KensingtonBooks.com along with Suspense Magazine, so make sure you visit SuspenseMagazine.com. Of course, you can subscribe to us here on uh, Spotify and iTunes or however you want to listen to the podcast. We love having all of the listeners. Uh, I've had some great shows in the past, so make sure you stay up to date on all of that. But without any further ado, we want to welcome... None other than Reese Bowen to the show for the first time. So, Reese, thank you so much for coming on tonight. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fine, thanks, John. How are you? Thank you for having me.
0: I am doing wonderful. Um, and again, it is such a pleasure to be able to speak with you. Um, of course, you know you've been at this for quite some time. Uh, four, you got four series that you had been going on at one point or another. Of course, you know people might know you right now um, with you know your Lady Georgenia or Lady Georgiana series, um, if that's you, um, with your latest book came out, you know, Love and Death Among the Cheetahs, which uh, just came out in August of 2019, but you are back here with a standalone, um, and it is called Above the Bay of Angels, and you kind of set this in Queen Victoria time, so why don't you tell everybody a little bit about what you got going on here?
1: Well, yeah, this is my fourth sort of big historical standalone, and it's so fun to write a standalone because, you know, you can just... Do everything you like, and then you can just walk away at the end. You don't have to leave people in a happy place at the end of the book. So I like that. Um, right. And yeah, this is, this is not only in Queen Victoria's time. It's about Queen Victoria, which was a lot of fun to write. Um, it started when I was in Nice a few years ago, and I was on a hillside, and we saw this beautiful big white building, and it said the sign on it said Excelsior Regina. There was a gardener outside, and I said to him, is this a hotel? And he said, no, madame, it's apartments now, but it used to be a hotel because it was built for your queen. And I said, for Queen Elizabeth? He said, no, no, madame, for Queen Victoria. I had not known that Queen Victoria ever visited the south of France, so I started looking into it, and it turned out that in her later years, she spent every winter in the south of France, and they built this beautiful hotel for her, and she came with all of her court, with her gentlemen, her ladies, her footmen, her maids, her cooks, and a regiment of Highland Pipers on a private train. And then she said, I don't want anybody to know I'm the queen. Now, it might have been a giveaway that you bring a regiment of <laughs> Highland Pipers with you. But, exactly. Um, so, that seemed, so I started looking into this, and then I found that in the year 1897, there was a lot of intrigue going on. She brought her Indian servant, Abdul Karim, with her, and everybody was desperately against him. They thought he was a dangerous man, but she wouldn't hear of it. So there was a a scheme going on on how to get rid of him. The Prince of Wales wanted her declared incompetent to rule. So I loved all this intrigue. But then I stopped and I thought, wait a minute. She's coming to the south of France to a new hotel with chefs and French cuisine. And she brings her own cooks. What was she thinking? And then I thought, well, what if one of those young women was her cook? And it's a young woman who's got a secret with something to hide. And she comes and she really loves the south of France and she blossoms under French cuisine. But then something goes horribly wrong. And in the book, uh, a, a royal guest is found dead. And it's her cuisine that is, uh, seems to be at fault. So, um, so you know, I, I started my story with that. So my, my heroine is a girl of good family who has fallen upon hard times and has to work for a horrible vulgar woman to support to provide for her little sister and she's stuck in this awful job when she uh, when she witnesses a tragic accident and the young woman is run over and as she bends to comfort this woman the woman thrusts an envelope into her hands and says tell them she looks in the envelope after the woman has died and it's from buckingham palace inviting this woman to come and be an undercook at buckingham palace and so my heroine seizes the moment and presents herself as Helen Barton from Yorkshire, because after all, who could possibly know? Well, of course, somebody does. So we have, we have intrigue, but we have lots of, lots of lovely recipes, lots of cooking, and um, we have the south of France. So it's, a, it's been a really luscious story to write. Mm-hmm.
0: The one thing that I, that always intrigues me, of course, about historical mysteries is is the setting and the time period, because... Everybody who's going to read this book was not born at the time that that was going on. So you had to, how much research did you kind of have to do, like you said? I mean, how long were you really, you know, having to dive into the research to find, you know, to find this information out? Because like you said, you know, when you were down in Nice, you had no idea that this even existed. So was it easy to kind of find the research that you were looking for? Was it difficult? How was that process? Because that's always very, very interesting to me whenever I, you know, whenever I dive into historical mysteries like this?
1: Well, you know, John, I suffer for my craft. I spent three weeks in, in, 20, in 2018 uh, just outside Nice doing lots of research. Uh, you know, you, you can't imagine how many bistros there are and how many different rosé wines and had to sample them all. No, seriously, I spent a lot of time at uh, second-hand bookshops. I bought lots of antique postcards. I spent lots of time at the library. The one, uh, for the first time in my life, my degree in French proved useful. So um, the librarians were wonderful, and they found interesting things like the brochure that was put out when the hotel was first designed. So I knew who slept on which floor, and I knew where the elevators were. I knew all that sort of thing. And um i do lots of research because to me everything if you're writing about a historical period if you're writing about a real time and place everything has to be right and um, if i read a historical book and i find something wrong that's the end of that book for me i won't read on so yeah i did so I, i read lots on queen victoria's kitchens and what she ate and who cooked for her and what it was like in there and luckily, you know Queen Victoria's the sort of person who 's got loads of books written about her, so right. I was able to find you know pictures of the kitchen and i 've got a whole book of her menus, so I know exactly what she had for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and my goodness, she ate a lot. You could tell the end of her <laughs> life the end of her life she was pretty much as wide as she was tall, and um, <laughs> what, when you saw her menus, you realized why, and um, the sort of things that she had they went in for. Really, really, really elaborate things. If you think of Terdakin, that was simple compared with what she had. One of the recipes I have was for lark pie. You know larks, little birds that sing? Oh, it yeah. Calls, it calls, the, the pie calls for 40 boned dunstable larks for the 40,
0: pie. 40? Four, 4-0? Four zero?
1: Four 0 yeah. Wow. So, you know, I had lots of recipes like this. And my favorite recipe actually was for turtle soup. And it says first procure a hundred and twenty pound turtle, and ah. then it tells you then it tells you how to how to kill it, to take the shell off, and everything oh else. But in my gosh! So cooking was not for the faint-hearted in those days. I think so. It was kind of no. fun to have a young woman. And another thing, most of the most of the cooks, as you can imagine, were male, and so That's it was kind true. of fun to have a young young woman who was sort of pushed to one side as being a slight nuisance in the kitchen who really has to prove herself against a lot of men so you know that was a fun thing to do too but no I, I, I always i always go to the i always write about somewhere i've been to before and then i go to the place when i'm writing it and i i just take in all the little things like what am i hearing here what am i smelling here um you know what does that taste like so that i can really bring it to life it's very important i think to bring it to life
0: Right. I think it's important that when the reader reads, they actually feel like they're in 1897, and that's what you know. And that's and that's where you place them.
1: That's exactly right. I yeah. want I want to take my readers in time travel. I don't want them to think, "Oh, I'm glad someone's telling me about 1897." I want right. them to think, "Oh my God, I've been transported." You know. But, so uh-huh. that's my aim. Whenever I write a historical, this is a, a sort of a bit of a departure for me because. It, the other, the other historicals I've done, the, the big standalones two of them have been about World War II, and one right. of them was World War I. So this is going back a little further in time, which means I'm not quite as happy with the others. Uh, you know, the older generation that I knew lived in 1930 and 1940, so I know how they spoke, and I know what they did, and I know how they dressed. But now I'm having to sort of put myself in the shoes of someone who wore very different clothes, you know, and, and did things very differently. Mhm.
0: So, Isabella aka Helen in in the yes. book. Which, yes. So, so because you were in Nice and and the and when you heard of, you know, this hotel used to be, you know, was built for Queen Victoria, that got your juices flowing to understand do the mystery, but when you decided, okay, I need a strong, you know, you wanted a strong female character. Why do you think Isabella, a.k.a. Helen, was the perfect person to be the star of your book?
1: Well, I think because she's been very wronged at the beginning of the story. You know, I always like to cheer for someone who has had um, been dealt a bad card. And in her case, she's, she comes from uh, a titled family. Her, her father is a younger son and therefore he inherits nothing. And also he's, he's uh, estranged himself from his family. And so... He's uh, when the book, when, you know, when she's a, a young child, he's doing quite well because he's like a meter and greeter at the New Savoy Hotel, and he knows how to talk to Russian countesses and how to speak good French, etc. But then he becomes an alcoholic, and he's caught sipping the drink, and he's fired. And so um, it's it, one, you know, once you have no reference in those days, you'd never get another job and so everything just slips downhill her mother dies one winter when you know they're living very poorly and she finds that her her father now has become a really pitiable creature and he finds her this job as a servant in a big house and she's horrified i mean she's mortally horrified and he said you don't want your little sister to starve do you and she yeah. comments in the book he always was a great manipulator um yeah. So um, there she's finding herself in this house owned by very rich people who own a garment factory. So they're up-and-comers, you know, and the woman is delighted when she finds that Isabella really is related to a, a, a title family. She brings her up into the living room when she has guests and she says, you know, she, she's from a really good family. I took her in poor things. She, she had nowhere else to go and she <laughs> loved to make her speak, you know, and she, like, you know, parading her. And, of course, Isabella is seizing inside and won't show it. So you can understand why she takes this. When she wants to leave, she's become a cook, and she's become really quite a good cook. And she thinks she can go and get a job somewhere else. And this woman says to her, if you ever try to leave, I won't give you a reference. And so she's trapped. And so finding this this letter is like the one way out in her life, and that's why she has to seize the chance. Yeah,
0: and you know, and that's like the night, and that's the, and there, and that was the intrigue right at the beginning. All of a sudden, random woman, letter in the hand, and you're like, whoa, okay. Now, where's this? Now, where's this story going to, going to take us? So, when you kind of ha- were writing that scene, and you were kind of getting into that, did you kind of have an idea about where it was going to go, or do you write more organically uh, with your stories?
1: Usually, I'm very organic. Usually, I okay. know I want to write about a place. In this case, I had a complete uh, – I knew I wanted her to be a cook for Queen Victoria. I knew I wanted to get her somehow to the south of France. And I knew that when she was there, something bad was going to happen. I didn't quite know what that was or who the, who the, the bad person would be or anything. But um, I did know that she had to find some – there had to be some way to get her into Queen Victoria's um, service and so you know i had this i had this idea that they that she'd find someone who who had been killed and takes her place and um uh you know the the thing is that she's i didn't want her to be sleazy in any way because obviously pretending to be someone else is is not the most admirable thing so i wanted her in a way to be rewarded and that's the fact that she sees this dying woman and she doesn't want her to be alone So she kneels beside her in the road and she's holding her hand and everything and trying to comfort her. Mm -hmm. And because she's doing the good deed, she gets the reward. The woman gives her the envelope and obviously is very worried. She doesn't want to die without telling the palace that she can't make the interview. So, um, you know, so Bella goes in her place.
0: So, I mean, you have the compassion and then you have the self-preservation kind of kicks in with Bella. Like, this is my way of survival. Yes, it is, yeah. Yeah. Um, Now, you know, you mentioned at the the beginning when you, you know, you like standalones because you're kind of able to kind of do whatever you want. You can kind of just walk away. But when you're done, like, with a book like Above the Bay of Angels and your standalones, do you ever kind of go back and be like, "Ah, you know, maybe I want to write one more just to kind of revisit them again? Do do you get that little itch in your stomach, you know, when you're done, (laughs) like, when you were done with this book? Are you like, "Ah, you know what, maybe I'm going to try to maybe do one more with this character Uh, or something
1: you know i've left i've left isabella in a very good place at the end of the book but i have to tell you the first big standalone i wrote called in farley field which actually won three awards that year so it did very well Mm -hmm. it was about um world war ii and bletchley park and espionage and i have had so many letters saying you know what's happening to pamela and ben now i need to know (laughs) and i thought well you know i could do another I could do another story with them very easily because we left it slightly open at the end, and there were so many characters. It was one of those books where someone's in France being questioned by the Gestapo, while someone else at the same time is doing this. You know, so we're, we're jumping around with quite a few protagonists. So I could follow any of those. The other, the other books, the Tuscan Child. Again, right. I left it in quite a, quite a nice place, I think, and and then. This year's book, well, last year's book now. Of course, we're twenty twenty. Last year's book, The Victory Garden. Right. That that sort of had an opening at the end that she could, if she wanted to, she could go to Australia. So, you know, I could follow up on any of these. You know, do you think?
0: You think maybe that's your subconscious? Like, "Ah, I just don't want. I want to leave that door open a crack.
1: (laughs) Oh yes, oh yes. I always like to leave doors open a crack. You know, if Mm -hmm. everybody's too happy at the end of a book, you know, it's. um, a little sickening uh, you know life life doesn't always leave you very happy at the end but um i have so many ideas in so many different time periods that i want to explore that's why you know i put my molly murphy series on hold after 17 books and yeah, I have to yeah tell it looks you, like single, the ghost
0: of christmas past was the last one
1: yeah every single day of my life i get um, another email saying when's another molly
0: of course but, you
1: know, the thing with her is that um, i married her off And then she had a child, and when you get to that stage, I had to say to myself, when would I put myself in harm's way if I had a baby? You know, I did have, I wrote three or four books when she, after she had a baby, and and each time the the reason for solving the crime was so compelling that she could not get out of it. Um, You know, it usually involved her and her family. But you can't do that all the time you know that's just a premise that's too much to take you and i didn't want her leaving her baby at home and rushing out and confronting bad people you know it's so i put her on i put her on hold for a while at least while i play with all these other ideas but lady georgia she's another thing i, I really love those books i like they're very therapeutic to write you know they're very funny and i have lots of um, i enjoy poking fun at the british aristocracy you know i married one of them and i we have lots of we have lots of cousins with silly nicknames so i love putting them in a very veiled way into the book and having a little chuckle <laughs> so you know th- those books i call out to john hey listen to what queenie just said you know and i it, I, I really enjoy writing them like that it's it's a, a big tonic for me
0: now, I mean, and you pretty much write about two books a year, and with all the research that has to go into these books, I mean, where do you just kind of find the time to, to write that? That's a, I mean, that's a lot. For historical writers, that's a lot.
1: It's I'm a crazy person, you know. that. <laughs> um, I'm trying to slow down a bit because, yeah, two books a year I've done for several, quite a few years now. Yeah. and um, And as you say, these standalones, it's not just, like if I'm writing about Lady Georgie, I have to do some research to the background of where I'm sending her at the moment. But then I really, I know the characters already. I know a lot. It's like coming back to an ensemble cast all the time, you know. Mm -hmm. It's like writing one huge novel. You step back where you were. So it's much easier to get going. Whereas the, you know, the big standalones, I've got to do all the research ahead of time. I've got to do loads of reading ahead of time. And then when I'm writing them, I have to do lots of just checking on little things all the time. I'm always... Um, I've just started a book on Venice. You know, I've got ma- maps of Venice spread all around me that I have to oh, say, know what was, the na- what was the name of that palazzo again. You know, so yeah. it, it takes a lot of time. So I would like and poor, to have, and think... poor
0: city of Venice right now just going oh. it's sinking. I mean, I oh. just I read a story about it. And I'm like one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Who knows what's going to be in 50 years? Who knows? Who knows?
1: Well, you know, I mean, the saddest thing is that they they're putting a flood barrier into place. Mm-hmm. um to keep to keep the rising waters from the lagoon out it was supposed to be ready in 2014 and because of um, mismanagement and corruption it still isn't ready and um it's gone so incredibly way over budget it's like in the billions of dollars and if it had been in time you know you could have you could have spared a lot of the buildings so, so many yeah. things i mean well they've always had high water that's been something that's happened every year you know that a little sure. water will come into st mark's square but this year, it got into things it never got into before. There's a, there's a fabulous bookshop in Venice called the Aqua Alta Bookshop, the high water bookshop. Oh. And they keep their books in big plastic tubs and, and in a real gondola because they, they know the high water comes in. This year, the water came over the gondola. And, oh. um and so books were ruined. I mean, that's never happened before. So now it's become absolutely unbearable. And then I don't know if you know, but now that I read this week, the canals are almost dry.
0: I did not see that.
1: So, you know, you, it's, it's gone crazy. It's, you know, people have to walk out to get to one of the boats, walk across the mud to get to a boat. So, uh, you know, I don't know what's oh, going to happen. Yeah, I think, knows? you know, the whole, the whole uh, tourism has gone crazy. You know, they have, when we were there in the summer, they had six cruise ships in one day now, can you imagine the wash from six cruise ships? It's just That's a lot it it and, and all the those you know two thousand people per ship spilling into Venice at once it's just ruining the city so i am really sad because Venice is a place I've known all my life and um uh you know it, it just really when i was when I was a young when I was a child, my parents used to rent a little villa just outside Venice in Treviso. And oh. used to drive drive in every day and park in the parking garage, and then they'd give my my brother and me some money and say see you at five o'clock, and we used to okay. wander around Venice. I knew my way around Venice perfectly when I was a kid, so it was a lot of fun.
0: It's gotta be hard to see it the way it's going, then. Yeah,
1: it's see, I've, very hard I've never see made it, yeah. Europe
0: yet. I my wife and I visit Asia uh, several times, but yeah. we've never made Europe yet. So
1: well the way things are going you probably ought to do it soon you know i know
0: (laughs) (laughs) the way it is going that's that now now, now, the one thing that that you do do um also with like your molly murphy series and you have done it with with lady george's is you have done some short stories uh to kind of maybe what fill some of the gaps within those series is that something that maybe you you were thinking about continuing um
1: every now and then i yeah i like to do a short story every now and then and, and um you know, it's good for the fans. Like if they don't, if my readers don't get a book from me for a while, at least they get a short story. And I've been, uh, a couple of the short stories were Christmas short stories, you know, and um, mm-hmm. so um, I've, I've actually been asked to do another Christmas book for the Lady Georgie series because oh. um, because the first one I did, The Twelve Clues of Christmas, um a it did very well, and b it was so much fun to write, you know with someone dying every day for twelve days was a, was a lot of fun to write
0: mhm well i mean I, i'm a, 'm I'm a huge mystery person. Agatha Christie is probably my my favorite author, her and Stephen King and Dean Koontz, I would have to say, are probably my three all time favorite authors that you know I grew up reading a lot of, and yeah. you know when, when I read your mysteries um I always, get, I always fall right back in, into that same mindset when I was, you know, 10 and 11 years old, reading all the Hakura Proyos that I possibly could and trying to find, the, you know, the Miss Jane Marples and, you know, the, you know Roger Ackroyd and all those, and all those stories that, that, that she wrote. Were you a big Agatha Christie fan? Um, you know, who was kind of your influence growing up when you were younger that gave you this confidence and gave you to say, you know what, I want to do this?
1: Well, it's interesting, yeah, I- I started off with when I was very young with uh, uh, Enid Blyton's The Famous Five. They were four children and a dog and they had adventures and they solved mysteries. And um, they were completely improbable. If you looked at them now, you'd laugh because these children would trap the smugglers in a cave and the smugglers will say, oh, we're sorry we were such naughty men, you know, <laughs> instead of just shooting the children, which I'm sure they would do now. Um, so I grew up with those, but then I moved on to Agatha Christie. I think it was when I was allowed, the first time I was allowed in the adult section in the library. Mm. And I just was overwhelmed because I just didn't know where to start. And then I saw Agatha Christie's name and I thought, oh, I know that name. Mm. So I worked my way through Agatha Christie, Niall Marsh, Josephine Tay, Marjorie Allingham, and i love them all and i still they're still my comfort reads but you know they never touch your soul i think don't think anybody's ever wept for the body in the library and so it wasn't i didn't think that i wanted to write those it wasn't until i discovered tony hellerman of all people i decided i decided i wanted to write mysteries because he was the first person i found who not only had a very clever mystery but he took you somewhere. He made you feel you were in another place and he gave you insights to another mentality. I was just blown away when I read those books because you know, t- that we now know how a Navajo thinks and we know what the, what the air looks like when it comes in over the Mesa and things. In fact, the first time we went to the Southwest, I was a tour guide. I sat next to my husband and I said, you see that over there, that ship rock, and you see that shelf? See that ledge just on the left of the top? That's where the body fell down from. I knew everything because I'd read Tony Hilleman. So I thought to myself, this is what I want to write. I want to write books that take someone somewhere. You give you a mini vacation. And so I start my first mystery series, of course, was My Constable Evans, set in Wales. And that was, you know, my mother's family's Welsh. And I I spent a lot of childhood summers there. And I knew all the quirks of the Welsh, how they had, you know, nicknames like Evans the meat and Evans the milk and everything so I put all those things in my first books and that was fun.
0: Mm -hmm. Do do you notice a difference in reader from and I I ask this to always to a lot of UK to UK writers do you see a difference in 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 readership from the Americans to the UK and the questions that you get from from the different sides of the pond?
1: It's interesting yeah when it comes to bookshops and awards and reviews in the uk it's much darker than the u.s the uk oh. absolutely absolutely loves scandinavia anything that ingomar sigomars deville writes is brilliant you know i mean i just decided i was going to change my name to ingomars <laughs> Doctor, you know and um no they 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 love really dark mysteries the interesting thing is that my books do very well in libraries over there so the, you know, the nice middle-aged ladies who go to the libraries like my books. Um, mm-hmm. and I think the young, you know, the sort of, uh, the young who would read Chicklet like my Lady Georgie's too. Um, and uh, my, the standalones have done really well over there. I think the Tuscan Child has sold nearly 100,000 copies, which for England is really a lot. Um, yeah. so, so, you know, they, they, they like my big standalones over there, but, um, The uh, the other thing I find is, because I'm published in America, there's a huge prejudice against me. I'm seen as sort of someone who's not quite English. And it was funny, in uh, the Farley yeah i mean do, do i sound american um, no <laughs>
0: not at <laughs> well, all i couldn't i not like i could say oh reese you definitely sound like you're from kansas no it doesn't work that
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah in um in my book in farley field it's about a stately home and um uh and about um a, a spy thing going on in england and the daughter of the stately home is wo- working at bletchley park and um Uh, One of the reviews, one of the first reviews I got on Amazon said, this woman knows nothing about Britain, nothing about the upper class, and nothing about how they talk. Now, my husband, whose family goes back to 800 and who has stately homes and and titles and God knows what's all around, was so furious about this. He was going to find who this woman was and hunt her down.
0: Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I will say this. There is... There is an author. His name is Kevin O'Brien, and, and I was going to say real quick, um, you are you're writing. You wrote another short story, which is going to be published at the end of this year, and it's going to be in the anthology that we're putting together, um, and that's really cool. We want to thank you so much for that. And another writer that's going to be in that book is Kevin O'Brien, and we interview him for his books. So he's a really good friend of ours. And the one thing that he does to kind of cleanse himself is he goes on Amazon and he finds the absolute worst review of his book. And he takes that name, and that's who he kills in the next book. And that's (laughs) kind of like his cleansing.
1: You know, often they don't leave their names. They call themselves something, you know, like... Right.
0: He tries to to find the one with the name, and then he's like, okay. And maybe sometimes it's just the first name, and he's like, well, I'm just... I'm killing James. James is dying (laughs) in the next one.
1: (laughs) He's the victim. Yeah, very therapeutic. You have to do something. I mean, the, the whole thing is... The whole, and um, because social media is so anonymous that people feel empowered to, I think there's some people who just enjoy writing the worst review they can possibly write. I think you know, so I got, too. I got, for Farley Field, I got some bad reviews. Well, I've got nearly 6,000 reviews. If you have 6,000 reviews, there's going to be some bad ones, around it? And they're yeah. mainly from, I think, men who saw that it was a World War II novel, and they started reading it and nobody got blown up, you know, and um so I think they're a bit disappointed in that in, in that it's very much um a character driven character interactions type of novel as opposed to suspense and chases and things. Um right. so you know, I, I, I fully appreciate that I'm gonna get some bad reviews. I just don't want any unfair bad reviews.
0: Exactly. That's what it is. Don't be unfair. And that's, and that's the thing. And that's why in our magazine, first of all, we never publish a negative review because we always just say, you know what? That's not our job. Our job is to not do anything like that. And so we don't do that. Um, we typically will just say, we give it to a couple reviewers. And if they just don't like the book, we'll go back and say, sorry, but we just can't review this. And then they appreciate that because we don't, that, that's not my job. I'm not putting negativity in the world. We already got enough of that out there right now that they don't need any help from, from me to do that. But, you know, we always look for the positive because, you know, authors spend so much time writing. And I don't think fans really understand the undertaking. They're like, oh, you're a writer? Oh, that's great. I get to sit behind a computer in my pajamas all day. I love that job. And it's like, yeah, why don't you try it
1: and then yeah. tell me if you love it? Yeah. I mean, among other things, it's the um, it's the isolation. You know, the fact is you're sitting there and you're writing every day. And really until you done. Every day. Yeah, every you know, I, I work a normal normal five day six day week actually normally, um, mm-hmm. but and while you're writing, there's no one sort of standing over you saying, "Good job, this is a good page you wrote today." So you know, you, I know every writer I know is, is is totally manic. They go up and down in like, "Wow, this is the best thing I've ever written," and then the next day it's like, "This is awful. Why did I write this?" this Why did I write that? Yeah, uh-huh. every every sing- I've written, I think forty five. 45 mysteries now and every book that i write goes the same way the first 50 pages are pure torture The first 50 pages i find myself saying this book this story will never work it's going to be way too short i'm going to say everything i want to say in 95 pages it's going to be a huge failure i'm going to have to give back my agatha awards nobody will ever read me again <laughs> and, and then i get to page 50 and i think oh well there is some story here And then, oh, yeah. And then by page 100, I say, oh, well, I think I can see now. And then by page 150, I think, oh, well, yeah, this is going. And then by page 200, we're galloping along. But every single book is like that. And it wouldn't work. You know, if I did a complete outline, I would be totally bored. I'd finish my outline and I'd go, okay, that's that book done. Let's move on. Um, I just, I, I I like to be surprised, you know, I think every book i've written is because i want to read that story and it's not on a shelf and so um i like to be surprised too i don't know what my heroine or my hero is going to do and i like to be one step behind going wait wait a minute i don't think you should go in that room and um uh if i was if i had an outline or something i feel like a puppet master like no you're not going that conversation cannot finish that way because in the next scene you're going to go over here um, whereas you know, they say when, once they start talking to each other they say things I have no idea what they're going to say and it's often really interesting um, the most amazing of those was one of the Constable Evans books I was writing was about a French woman who um, had uh, had a restaurant up in North Wales and it burned down and they'd found a body in it and they found she'd owned another restaurant in the south of England and they, uh, Constable Evans is sent down to interview people down there and he was talking to her next door neighbor and the next door neighbour suddenly said, "So was she really French? Because I always thought she was English." And I stared at the I stared at the computer and I said, "Don't say that!" And I actually shouted at the computer for ten minutes because I was just about to go to France, and um, it had completely thrown off what I wanted to do next. So you know, I I have to be I like things like that. I like to be surprised and I, I like to be thrown off. <laughs> You know, obviously, my my subconscious is several jumps ahead of me. I suppose.
0: Right. Now, do you do a lot? Do you do a lot of conferences? Do you go to a lot of conferences?
1: I I have been in the past. I have. I've been to. I go to Left Coast Crime every year. We I've will seen, be there
0: this year. Oh well, because it's, in, Sa- cause it's in San them. Diego. Yeah.
1: Yes. It, yes. I will see you at the bar. Um, yes, we will. I I usually go to Bouchercon. Um. I usually go to Malice. I've been to smaller ones, you know, um, I don't really need to go to as many out of need anymore. I go to the ones cause I like to see my friends and right. um, you know, that's, that's one of the good things about conferences is you get, to, well, one of the amazing things about the whole mystery profession is that you make such really good friends, not just superficial friends, but really good friends. Yeah. And so if a conference is an, is an excuse to see them, then it's really worth going to. And um, uh, you know, I write uh, a joint blog. Uh, There's the Jungle Red Writers. There are seven of us, and um, all seven of us were at Bouchercon this year in Dallas. And that's I think, the first time that's ever happened. So, we did, we did one of our silly game shows, but we also went out to dinner and lunch every day, which was really nice. Got good. I was going to say, I hope
0: you got a nice picture and some great stories out of that.
1: We did. We got a. There was there was a professional photographer there who was doing group pictures. So all doing uh, you know, professional pictures. So we got a group picture of the jungle reds and, and it was very nice and and we got some good food too. So you no know. so I think seeing people at conferences are wonderful. You know, I don't I don't go to that many panels anymore because I've heard so many times where do you get your ideas from and how to write strong women, you know. So um but um you always you always pick up something interesting. You always learn something interesting there and it's very interesting to see guests of honor interviewed and um yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, but we're
0: definitely going to have to connect um, down at Left Coast Crime because we typically go to Thriller Fest, which is in New York every year. But since we're based out of Los Angeles, we typically don't go to a lot of the other ones um, unless they're closer in California. And this year we get lucky because Left Coast Crime is in San Diego, and Bouchercon is going to be in Sacramento. So yeah. we're going to be able to yeah. do we're going to do three this year, um, yeah. which is good. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I've never been to Thriller Fest because actually I don't really write thrillers, I mean in farley Field was the closest i ever came to a thriller but apart from that i've never written Anything where, you know, you, the clock is ticking and you have to save the world. I've, I've never done that. Before.
0: Yeah, but you'd fit in pretty good there, I think, though, too. Because okay. not, it's not all thriller. It's not. It's thriller fest based on the fact, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's kind of more li- along the lines of, like, the pace. Because, you know, like Steve Barry, I mean, he's part of the board members and things like that. But, he, you know, he writes historical Cotton Malone, and it's more like a Dan Brownish kind of thing. But, oh, I think you'd fit in beautifully at yeah. thriller fest. There's a lot of mystery yeah. and a lot of stuff in there. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It's
1: just New York. New York in June is July, isn't it? Usually, New York in yeah, July. Yeah, it's like the it? week
0: after. Ju- it's like the week after July 4th, and it is very hot. It yeah. can get very hot. Yeah. yeah. That's the only bad and thing.
1: And we're usually in in Europe during June and July. We won't be this year because I've got I'm meeting some friends in England in October, so oh. our trip to to Europe will be late this year. But um. Uh, Do you uh, go to Harrogate. I've never been invited. It's an invited thing and no one's ever invited oh. me. So
0: Okay. So and then I know there's I'm, Crime Fest too, right in Bristol, I believe. Those I've are the been, two that I've I I've been
1: to Crime Fest several times and again, it's, you know, I go to, uh, I have to say, you know, I do have a slight amount of vanity. I go to Malice in this country and everybody goes, oh, Miss Bowen, I love your books. <laughs> and I go to, I go to Crime Fest and people push, push, push part, past me and they go, oh, look, down the hall there, Zigamar, and so. You know, oh yeah, that's I'm, true. I'm not, I'm not Scandinavian. So nobody's going to yeah. fall over backwards for me. So no, I mean, it, it, I've been a couple of times to that, but no, Harrogate is, is invitation only. And I, I say I haven't been invited ever. So.
0: But I'll um, tell you what, it's very hard, and it's very, and you're very lucky that you're able to sell so well in the United States and the UK because an author, a good friend of ours, like Peter James, he is like he can't he can't catch a cold in the United States to sell his books, but he's a rock it, star
1: in Europe. Oh, I know. I know. So you see his books everywhere, and, uh, and that's a, that's a, one of the strange things. Is I mean, apart from someone like Harlan Coben, and right? Lee Karen Slaughter, and the
0: Child does well.
1: Mike Connolly. So, Mike I mean, Connolly. Yeah. Those those three you see everywhere, but apart right. from that, as, as you say, if you're if you're a big noise in one, you really are not in the other most. And one I'm delighted about that's done really nicely now is Anne Cleeves because she was. Mm. She, I've been friendly with her for years. She was like definitely a, a mid-list writer, you know, a quiet little person in England until the TV series, and now of course she's she's known and loved in both places, which is really nice.
0: Yeah, that's good. I mean, because I love more. I, I guess I love the UK style writing a little bit better than the American style writing, um, especially when it comes to mysteries, uh, without a doubt. Whodunits. I, I'm drawn a lot more to the UK style of writing than I am to the American style of writing. Um, I think more, and you know, yours fits. Like I said, right in that vein of, you know, the Agatha Christie kind of thing. I mean, I guess the biggest thing we would had over here was Murder She Wrote and Jessica Lansbury. You know, yeah. and you know Jessica yeah. Fletcher. I was, yeah. That's probably, I guess, yeah. the biggest thing that we have over here. But now, where's the best place for everyone to find out about your work? Is it your website, just Bowen, um, dot com
1: dot com? Yes, absolutely, ReeseBowen dot com. Also, I'm on Facebook. I'm very active on Facebook on my author okay. page. Which is author Reese Bowen at Facebook. Mm-hmm. And I'm also on Twitter as Reese Bowen. And these days, of course, I'm on Instagram as Reese wow. Bowen. You've got to do them all, things don't you? All, all these things we authors have to do, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But you know, the
0: good thing about like an Instagram and stuff like that is you're able to kind of all those pictures, maybe like when the book comes out, you can see like, well, here's like the picture of the hotel in Nice, and here's what I was talking about, and here's kind of the area, and here's where, you know, Isabella was doing this. And that gives a great layer of story that I don't think that you were able to have, you know, even like 10 years ago.
1: Uh, it's wonderful, yes. And it, I mean, and all of those things, you know, Facebook, you connect so intimately with readers if mm-hmm. i go on facebook and i say oh dear i cut my finger this morning i can guarantee within an hour there are people volunteering to type my manuscripts for me so i mean it's yeah. it's a very it's a very in, you know instant immediate sort of connection which which is really nice in many ways
0: yeah, yeah. well i want to tell you reese um this has been absolutely a Fabulous conversation! I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking to us, not just about above the Bay of Angels, but um, just everything. I mean, it was just so wonderful to speak to you with you, you know for the first time on the show, and, and you can come back whenever you want. Um, Jeff is going to re- he's going to hear this interview; he's just going to kick himself in the butt and say, "Have her on in three more weeks so I can do the interview with her too." But um, yeah, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. And, um, of course, we're going to be keeping in touch here uh, uh, very closely in the next uh, couple months. So, yeah, thank you so much.
1: Well, John, thank you, and I'll see you at Left Coast Crime.
0: Absolutely. You
1: have a wonderful night, and we'll talk soon. Good. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.